Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So we recently talked about cooling the mirrors at LIGO in order to probe the mysteries of the quantum realm. Now, researchers have levitated a glass nanosphere, causing it to act in a quantum-like way. Now, this time, instead of adjusting the movement of a system, it was an actual object that was pushed into acting in a quantum way. The nanosphere was just 100 nanometers in diameter, about a thousand times smaller than the thickness of a human hair. Uh, Our favorite measurement comparison strikes once again. (laughs) And so, Despite this being very small from a macro perspective, it's actually quite large in the quantum realm, being made up of around 10 million atoms. Being able to push such an object into the quantum realm is kind of a big deal. Using precisely calibrated laser light, once again, the nanosphere was suspended in its lowest quantum mechanical state causing the atoms to have limited enough motion to begin to exhibit quantum behavior. So um, if you were listening when I was talking about the LIGO um, system, basically uh, when you get down to the quantum level, and kind of always, but when you really get down to the quantum level, in some ways uh, temperature and movement are very, very highly linked. So when we say we've cooled something down, uh, you know, to next to uh, absolute zero, what we're saying is that we have stilled it um, to the point where the atoms are barely moving. Um, And so that's how you use the laser lights. You use the laser lights to be able to stop the movement of the atoms in the Um, in the nanosphere. This is the first time that such a method has been used to control the quantum state of a macroscopic object in free space, says Lucas Novotny, a professor of photonics at, at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. And so in order to achieve the effect, the researchers used a vacuum cooled chamber, uh, cooled to negative 452 degrees Fahrenheit, and used a feedback system to make further adjustments. Using an interference pattern generated by two laser beams, they were able to calculate the exact position of the nanosphere inside of the chamber, and then were able to use an electrical field created by two electrodes to bring the movement of the sphere to almost zero. Uh, Basically, the field is used to push or pull the sphere um, until the motion is almost completely stopped. Sorry, I forgot about that. Um, It's not the lasers. The lasers just kind of capture it, and then they use the electrical field in order to affect the actual um, atoms. And so that is how they're able to get it to be almost completely stopped. 
to clearly see quantum effects, the nanosphere needs to be slowed down all the way to its motional ground state, says electrical engineer Felix Teben Johans from ETH Zurich. This means that we freeze the motional energy of the sphere to a minimum that is close to the quantum mechanical zero-point motion. And so similar results have been achieved before, but those required an optical resonator to balance objects using light. This approach better protects the nanosphere against disturbances and, in theory, can be viewed in isolation after the laser is turned off. And so the researchers hope that this type of experiment can help us better understand what causes elementary particles to behave like waves. It's also possible that such setups could help develop next-generation sensors. Together with the fact that the optical trapping potential is highly controllable, our experimental platform offers a route to investigating quantum mechanics at macroscopic scales, concluded the researchers in their paper published in the journal Nature. So that's, again, kind of a big deal. Uh, we still have a lot of questions around how elementary particles can behave both as particles and waves. Uh, we know it happens. Uh, we're very clear on that. Uh, you know, everyone has probably heard of the double split, the double slit experiment. Uh, and so we know that they act both as particles and waves. But there's a lot about how that happens that we just we just don't know about yet. Uh, and of course, next generation sensors, if you can have something that is at that sort of preciseness, it's easy to envision ways in which that can be used as a sensor. Um, and so also it's just extremely amazing that they can take something that is such a huge object from a uh, quantum uh, viewpoint and be able to actually pull it down to almost its uh, lowest state of motion. So yeah, very cool. Little things that have big impact. <laughs> okay, so in another first, physicists have created the world's thinnest magnet. Again, this is a big deal. <laughs> the material is just a single atom thick and operates at room temperature. And so part of the reason why this is a big deal is because previous attempts to make essentially 2D magnets have failed, with materials losing their magnetism and becoming unstable when removed from ultra-cold conditions. So in ultra-cold conditions, it's a lot easier to have magnetism. Um, it's why superconductors, sort of the, uh, you know, pie in the sky, uh, absolute fantasy of all people who work with superconductors is to find ones that work at room temperature um, because the majority of them require uh, being cool or ultra-cooled um, in order to actually work. So being able to work at room temperature is a big deal. We're the first to make a room temperature 2D magnet that is chemically stable under ambient conditions, said materials scientist Ji Yao of the University of California, Berkeley. 
State-of-the-art 2D magnets need very low temperatures to function, but for practical reasons, a data center needs to run at room temperature. Our 2D magnet is not only the first that operates at room temperature or higher, but is also the first magnet to reach the true 2D limit. It's as thin as a single atom. And so the material is made from cobalt-doped Van der Waals zinc oxide, which is quite a mouthful. Uh, and so this is material made by combining graphene oxide, which is where you get the oxide, and then zinc and cobalt. And so basically it's a zinc oxide that has cobalt inserted into it, uh, which is why it's called cobalt doped. And uh, the Van der Waals, that is, um, if you remember from uh, basic physics or from one of the times that I've talked about it, uh, geckos are very uh, much... Uh, talked about when we talk about van der Waals. And so van der Waals is a force that keeps things together, um, which is not magnetism. It is about surface area, um, if I'm remembering right. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I, I didn't think to look about, look it up um, offhand, but it's about, um, as far as I can remember, it is about uh, surface area and about um the tension between surface areas that stick things together. Um, and it's a really weak force, but uh, it can also, you know, depending on the scales, it could be pretty uh, useful. So like, for instance, um, geckos uh, are able to use it to climb up walls and things like that. Anyways, we're not talking about geckos tonight. And so again, it's made by combining zinc, cobalt, and graphene oxide. And so the material is made by immersing graphene oxide in acetate dihydrates of zinc and cobalt with carefully controlled ratios. When baked in a vacuum, the substance slowly cools into a single layer of zinc oxide with interspersed cobalt atoms sandwiched between layers of graphene. So basically the zinc and the oxide, the, the um, oxygen, uh, creates a zinc oxide, and then the graphene is left as a byproduct. And so the material is then baked in air to burn off that graphene uh, byproduct layer, leaving the single layer of cobalt-doped zinc oxide. The researchers used scanning electron microscopy to confirm that the material was indeed only one layer of atoms thick. They then used transmission electron microscopy to image the crystal structure and composition one atom at a time. The amount of magnetism found in the material is dependent on the ratio of cobalt in the system. And so at 5-6% to 6 cobalt, a fairly weak magnetic field was achieved, but at 12% the material became quite magnetic. At 15%, though, the material was so strongly magnetic that the local spins of atoms began to compete with each other, a phenomenon known as frustration. So it seems that 12% is the best ratio for maintaining a useful magnetic field. And so the material not only stays magnetic at room temperature, but at temperatures up to 212 Fahrenheit even though zinc oxide is not a ferromagnetic material. 
our 2D magnetic system shows a distinct mechanism compared to previous 2D magnets, said materials scientist and first author of the study, Rui Chen of UC Berkeley. And we think this unique mechanism is due to the free electrons in zinc oxide. So, um, electrons are basically, in essence, magnets themselves. Each has a north and a south pole, so to speak, and features a tiny magnetic field. In most materials, the magnetic fields are not aligned and cancel each other out. But in ferromagnetic materials, electrons group together in domains that all have the same magnetic orientation. Basically, all of those electrons are aligned in such a way that their magnetic fields are all in the same orientation. In a magnetic material, um, sorry, they're all um, aligned. And so the researchers believe that free electrons that are not attached to the nucleus in the zinc oxide could be working as intermediaries that keep the magnetic cobalt atoms uniformly oriented even at high temperatures. The paper, published in the journal Nature Communications, suggests exciting avenues for further exploration. And so uh, this could help in developing... Um, new technologies, but it may also, again, be able to help in research. The film is flexible and its manufacturers, manufacturers scalable, which of course are both needed to be, um, to be able to create a commercial project product. But researchers may be able to use the material in studying magnetic interactions between atoms. Again, a component of research in quantum physics. So, uh, obviously, quantum physics has been quite the um, topic as of late, and there's been a lot of interesting things happening in quantum mechanics um, and quantum physics. And, you know, obviously, I can't explain it to you all because I am not a quantum physicist, and even quantum physicists have problems with some of it. As we said, you know... Uh, we still don't quite know how it is that a, that an atom can be both a atom that is a um, an object and also a wave. Um, how it can do both of those things is still a really interesting um, and unknown uh, variable. And of course, the whole connection between the macro and the quantum world. Uh, obviously, we are still in search of the elusive theory of everything, um, which would actually tell us how it is that the quantum and macro world are connected. Because again, a lot of the reason why people are trying so hard to get macro um, objects to behave like quantum objects is because the two generally don't act the same at all. And so, yeah, I think it's really excellent that these sorts of uh, experiments can be helping us to learn more about quantum physics because quantum physics is weird. Uh, it is definitely weird and I like weird things. <laughs> um, so the, this can actually be used for other things as well. So uh, it can also be used in the study of spintronics, which is a great name for a band, uh, but is also the study of the spin of electrons. So again, um, you know, those electrons are spinning 
And um, so spin, okay, I just said something that's totally not true. Um, electrons don't spin in the way that you think of like spinning in a circle. Um, spin is a totally weird thing that we're going to set aside for tonight because I watched a video on it recently and I have to say that I'm not sure that I could fully explain it to you. Full honesty here. Um, spin is a weird concept. Uh, again, you know, at the quantum level, things are weird. Uh, and so I think I would need to do some more research and really think some more on it to be able to feel like I could explain spin to you. Um, but apparently there's a whole study of it, so that's exciting. <laughs> Smarter people than me are working on that. Uh, and so as for manufacturing, it could be used to create lightweight and flexible memory devices, which rely on switching magnetic field orientations to encode binary data. So think of all the cool things that could be made with tiny, flexible memory devices. Um, you know, there's something to be said about uh, phones and how, you know, phones got very, got smaller and smaller and smaller. And now they've seemed to get bigger again, um, which is an interesting phenomena. But, um, you know, things like that, having a tiny phone in your hand, um, having a wearable device, for instance, if it's lightweight and flexible, it could be a wearable device. You could use it for medical uh, needs to be able to do medical testing on people, um, tracking, you know, heart rates, things like that. And so, yeah, it's very, very promising. Our results are even better than what we expected, which is really exciting. Most of the time in science, experiments can be very challenging, Yao said. But when you finally realize something new, it's always very fulfilling. So, yeah. You can tell that this is a very exciting thing from how exuberant the uh, researchers are. Um, you know, it's not always the case that when a researcher is exuberant, that they really have found something. Sometimes they're trying to kind of patch over the fact that they are not getting uh, the sort of results that they want. But here it seems pretty straightforward that they have been able to create this thing that is really stunning and new. So that's very exciting. Okay, so let's move on from the world of physics to the realm of space once more. I swear I can't get away from space. Space is just so interesting lately. Um, in the last couple of years, so much space news has been happening that I'm constantly coming back to it. So first, uh, you may have already heard about this, but I just wanted to document it uh, because it's very, very heartening to me uh, that I am so excited that NASA has finally been able to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. After taking a month to fully investigate the breakdown, NASA has successfully turned on backups to the broken hardware that caused a collective cry of despair for much of the astronomical community. Okay, I'm probably exaggerating there, but it just seemed like, you know, the Hubble is so important to have it break down when we haven't yet replaced it. Um, but that's probably a bit of hyperbole. I was quite worried, NASA Associate Administrator Thomas Zerbuchin, um, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, said in a Friday video interview with Nzinga Tull, who led the Hubble team through troubleshooting. 
we all knew this was riskier than what we normally do. And so while Hubble is indeed starting to show its age, it was launched into orbit in 1990. Um, so that's, that's crazy to me. Um, I was in, I'm not going to tell you what I was in. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you can extrapolate, but, um, let's just put it this way. I was not yet in high school. Uh, it is still currently the most powerful space telescope we have. This is an older machine and it's kind of telling us, look, I'm getting a bit old here, right? It's talking to us. Zerbuchin said. Despite that, more science is ahead and we're excited about it. And so the James Webb telescope is meant to replace Hubble, but it's been stymied by delays, cost overruns, and well, a pandemic. Um, and yes, NASA has been pumping out other projects while uh, in pandemic mode, but the web is having some troubles. Um, I mean, it's it's extremely advanced. It is like cutting edge technology. And so that makes a little bit of sense. Um, but it is kind of disheartening to see how long uh, the delays just keep piling up. So the payload computer designed in the 1980s and which controls and monitors all of the spacecraft's science instruments suddenly ceased operations on June 13th. I would just like to take a moment to think about the fact that the computer in the Hubble telescope was made in the late 1980s. I remember computers in the late 1980s. Um, and it is mind-blowing to me that uh, the Hubble is able to do what it does with technology from the 1980s, even the very late 1980s. Um, you know, you don't think about these things until it's written in front of, written, you know, and down and you read it and you're just like, oh my God, that's true. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm blown away by that. You may not be. <laughs> and, um, so several attempts to reboot the system failed, but after running a series of diagnostics, they realized that the problem was somewhere else in the system. But the problem actually was remains a mystery. Engineers suspect that a failsafe on the PCU instructed the computer to shut down. The PCU could have been sending the wrong voltage of electricity, or the failsafe itself could have malfunctioned. Luckily, NASA had prepared for Hubble to need redundant hardware. Each piece of hardware has a twin waiting in the wings to take over if the main player has an issue. Of course, this involves switching over other hardware that is hardwired to the new PCU unit as well. So you can't just turn one thing over because all of the other things that are running were attached to the first one. Um, and so you can't have that kind of redundancy where everything is attached both to the one that's working and the one that's in stasis. Um, and so you have to have backups of everything else that are already connected to the stasis one. So, you know, that was a bit of, you know, that took a little bit of time and um, probably a lot of uh, crossed fingers and held breaths. Um, and so they also switched to the backup payload computer, which meant that they needed to send updated software to the unit. And of course, because again, from the 1980s. 
You can't see the spacecraft. You can't watch it happen. You have to make sure that your commands upload, your command uploads are going to do exactly what you intend them to do. Paul Hertz, director of NASA's Astrophysics Division, told Business Insider last week. You just don't want to accidentally break anything, he added. Yes, please. But as of last Friday, NASA reported that the Workhorse Telescope has returned to normal operations mode. But it also means that if these components fail, there are no other backups, and the mystery of what went wrong is still an issue. Whatever that component is, it's in, a, it's in lots of other satellites, Hertz said. We always want to understand what works and what doesn't work in space. And so, yeah, that's, that's important. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to stay with space and we're going to talk about some really cool discoveries by an amateur uh, astronomer. So, yeah, please do stay tuned. We will be back in just a few minutes. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Hey, everyone. DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contains zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. The federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require tr- special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. 
Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as advertised before the break, we are going to talk about the... um, about an amateur astronomer. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Uh, and so astronomy is one of the last refuges for uh, true amateurs. And so, um, you know, most science has become so specialized that people not involved in academia or in industry, they just don't have the tools to be able to produce breakthrough results. But for astronomy, sometimes all you need is your eyes and potentially access to data or even just a backyard telescope. Q. Kai Lai, who has already found four of five quote-unquote lost Jovian moons using images from a public archive. And so this allowed astronomers to recalculate their orbits. So these five lost Jovian moons come from a group of 23 small Jovian satellites that Scott Shepard, an astronomer from the Carnegie Institution for Science and colleagues reported in 2003. Many of these were later lost as it's hard to keep track of some of the smaller moons that surround the giant planet. And partially that's because they're so faint that they can only be seen for around a month each year when Jupiter is closest to Earth and only using large telescopes, larger than you can fit in your backyard. (laughs) Early observations were spotty, so it made extrapolating their positions ever more inaccurate. Enter Kai Lai, who turned to the Canadian Astronomy Data Center's Solar System Object Image Search and found that the best images of the moon came from the same 3.6-meter Canada-France-Hawaii telescope used to discover them. I simply search on an object's name and the page automatically displays a list of all the raw images that are supposed to contain the object, they said. They then hunted for them in images of the area where they should have been and used the world coordinate system to line up sequential images to help match coordinates of reference stars. They would then spend up to several minutes blinking images, 
basically you go back and forth between the two images and you look for faint signs of movement as they move from one frame to the next. This particular feat wouldn't even have been possible seven years, several years ago, according to another amateur astronomer, Sam Dean, who has helped lie and has also done his own work. It's only recently that large databases have been open for amateurs to use. The main resource we amateurs have nowadays is the sheer amount of data from the world's largest telescopes and observatories taken every night for us to hunt through, he explains. Though, the process is complicated and the infrastructure isn't always user-friendly. As Lai was working, Shepard was also working and actually recovered two of the same moons, but both of their findings are unfortunately currently caught in a processing backlog at the Minor minor Planet Center. Uh, But there are no hard feelings or pressing claims uh, uh, for, you know, pressing for the claim of having refound it um, on Shepard's side as, you know, a professional astronomer. He's not worried about that. He says, it was impressive that Kai was able to use the older observations. Uh, And so Lai actually used data from 2001 and 2003 to locate the moons. And so the reason to want to refine the moons is that they can tell us about the history of the solar system. Most of these are captured objects rather than objects formed in orbit. They tend to have retrograde retrograde orbits, which means they're circling uh, Jupiter the opposite way from which Jupiter spins, are highly eccentric, so they have long, elongated elliptical orbits, and are inclined to the plane of the solar system. So if you remember, you know, the basic idea that most of the solar system is on a sort of a straight axis, they are not Uh, rotating on that axis. They're slightly askew from it, or even sometimes very askew from it. They mostly belong to one of five distinct families, each featuring one big and many smaller objects, which appear to be fragments broken off during collisions of the large object with other passing objects. And while such collisions are now rare, the numerous small objects suggest that they were far more frequent in the past. And so it turns out Lai is actually back in the news because he has now located a previously unknown moon orbiting the planet. I'm proud to say that this is the first planetary moon discovered by an amateur astronomer. They posted June 30th in a message at the Minor Planet mailing list, an online community for the world's leading amateur astronomers. This time, they used the data from 2003, finding the moon in the Karm Cluster, a group of 22 objects with similar orbits. Lai observed the object, spotted by NASA in 2003, but thought to be a satellite, and then calculated its 22-day arc using data from the Subaru telescope to verify that the object was indeed orbiting around Jupiter. In the end, I measured a total of 76 observations spanning an arc of 15.26 years, or 5,575 days, Lai writes in the MPML message. The orbit of this Jovian moon is now well secured for decades to come, so I hereby present to you Jupiter's 80th moon. 
And then uh, <laughs> it is currently known as EJC0061 uh, or S slash 2003 J24. Um, and so that's provisional. And at some point, the backlog will get <laughs> uh, un unclogged, I hope, and it will actually get a real designation and it will become the 80th moon known uh, to be orbiting Jupiter. Now, Lie describes their work, which is, you know, definitely going to make a lot of us feel uh, a little bit uh, underwhelming. They describe their work as, quote, a summer hobby before I return to school. Um, and that was according to an interview with Sky and Telescope. I will continue my hunt for unidentified Jovian moons in the February 2003 dataset. So stay tuned for additional Jovian moon discoveries by me in the next coming months, <laughs> they wrote uh, at the MPML uh, board. So yeah, that is pretty cool. I think it's really nice that there's still places where uh, amateurs can do real scientific work and have it be absolutely, uh, you know, regular, important scientific work and not just kind of hobbies. And so, yeah, um, that is not to say that people can't do things in other realms. Um, it's just much harder, I think, than in astronomy, because in astronomy, you have access fairly easily to data. And again, people have found things using their own uh backyard telescopes. You know, they're not the kind of backyard telescope you had as a kid. Some of them are quite advanced, but they're still amateurs. They're not affiliated with academia and they're still able to do this. Um, and I just think that's kind of cool. Um, mostly because I like to style myself as like a 19th century gentleman scholar. So it's 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 nice to know that 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 there's at least still some places out there where you can um you know still be able to be involved in science without having to be involved in academia though i loved academia don't don't get me wrong okay so we are going to return now to a clearly fan favorite around here uh, a closer neighbor of ours mars so a trio of studies have been released detailing the various sections of the planet's interior based on seismic data collected by the InSight lander. The three studies, all published in the journal Science, detail information about the thickness and makeup of Mars's crust, information on the upper mantle, and finally the Martian core. And so the teams were able to calculate ranges for the thickness of each layer, measure their densities, and get a look at how they interact. The work allows geoscientists to compare and contrast with Earth's interior in order to learn more about how planets evolved. These three studies provide important constraints on the present-day structure of Mars and are also key for improving our understanding of how the planet formed billions of years ago and evolved through time, wrote Sane Kotar and Paula Kolemeyer, seismologist at the University of Cambridge and Royal Holloway, University of London, respectively, in a Perspectives article on the new information. 
So um, if you're not familiar with science, a lot of times they will have the actual um, paper and then someone else will write what's called a perspectives article where they are someone who is in the field and they write about the um, paper. And so, yeah. Insight has been recording Marsquakes since early 2019. However, unlike on Earth, where tectonic plate movement creates regular, often large quakes, Marsquakes are fewer and mostly of much lower magnitude. They occur in stressed portions of the crust. And so the team was actually looking for shear waves, which are seismic waves that are generated by a Marsquake and then bounce off different layers of the planet's interior, giving a picture of what they've encountered. While InSight has detected over a thousand quakes, only 12 were of sufficient strength and quality, and even among these, none registered over a magnitude 4.0. But those 12 were able to give at least preliminary information about uh, the planet's interior. And so the first team found that the crust was between 15 and 45 miles thick, similar to that of the Earth below the continents. They also found it was composed of more radioactive heat-producing elements like thorium and uranium than the Earth. The second team found that Mars's upper mantle, or lithosphere, is thicker than Earth's, with Mars coming in at 311 versus 255 miles thick for the Earth. Study author Amir Khan, a geophysicist at ETH Zurich, explained that while the planets have similar mineralogy, that the composition of the two planets is different, indicating that the two planets formed in a different fashion. Which is interesting, very, very interesting, considering the fact that we kind of think of the rocky planets as of all having been formed pretty much in the same way, um, at least, you know, that was always my sort of thought process, obviously, not informed by uh, clear science, just a kind of assumption. But apparently that assumption is not correct. And so finally, the core was found to be bigger than previously thought. It is mostly molten iron like Earth's core. But the data suggests that the core would have cooled faster than Earth's, and so at some point it would have had potentially the geodynamo that sustained a Martian magnetic field similar in strength to the Earth's. And so that would have been for a period of time, but that period of time was long ago in the past. Um, and so we know that because the signature can be observed in older magnetized rocks on the planet. The size of the Martian core, the crustal layering, and the thick lithosphere provide important insights into the thermal and dynamic evolution of Mars, Qatar and Kohlermeyer wrote. Over the coming years, as more Mars quakes are measured, scientists will refine these models of the red planet and reveal more of Mars's enigmatic mysteries. Now, of course, the main concern moving forward is. Uh, that the lander has a problem. Now, the mission has been approved to go through 2022. So, um, you know, they had the they have the ability to extend the mission. But currently, 
the lander has a dust problem. Its solar panels are currently mostly covered in Martian dust. And they were actually able to do a little bit of tweaking of that. They had a really, really great idea where they thought, well, you know, the dust is very fine and doesn't weigh a lot, but if we uh, basically sprinkle some dirt onto them, maybe that dirt will be, you know, heavy enough that it will not only flow off of the um, solar panels itself, but it'll take the dust with it. That helped a little bit, but it's still got a lot of dust on it. And so they're just pretty much everyone at NASA, I think, is kind of holding uh, their breath slash uh, crossing their fingers that um, in another couple of um, months or maybe, um, I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is, but there is a time when the wind should pick up basically. And they're hoping that um, some wind will pick up and it will take that dust off of the solar panels. So hopefully that is going to happen. So on another patch of the red planet, Perseverance is getting to is getting ready to collect the first rock sample to be stored for later pickup by a future mission. The rover is expected to locate a pair of ancient identical rocks in Yezero Crater and then perform in situ experiments on one of them while drilling a core sample from the other, which will then be stored aboard the vehicle in a hermetically sealed container. And so Percy is currently in an area called the Cratered Floor Fractured Rough, um, which is a great, another great name, and is believed to contain some of the deepest and most ancient layers of exposed bedrock in the area. When Neil Armstrong took the first samples from the Sea of Tranquility 52 years ago, he began a process that would rewrite the, what humanity knew about the moon. Thomas Zerbuchin, Associate Administrator for Science at NASA's headquarters, said in a statement, I have every expectation that Perseverance's first samples from Yezero Crater and those that come after will do the same for Mars. And so the procedure is um, scheduled to take around 11 days to complete, to complete, because of course, NASA will have to be guiding the rover remotely, and Mars is really far away. <laughs> um, it just it's, it's hard to imagine, um, because as I'm always talking about, humans are bad at you know, big numbers, um, but it's it's very far away. It's it's millions of miles away, and it takes. Um, oh, I should have looked it up. I'm sorry, I didn't. Uh, I think it takes like 12 minutes maybe to get to Mars and back. Um, please look it up if you really want to know what the right answer is, um, because I'm taking that strictly from memory. Um, and so the first thing they actually have to do is locate two rocks that look like quote unquote geological twins. They don't actually have them uh, mapped out yet, <laughs> um, but it should be fine. I promise. Um, and so once they've done that, they'll use Percy's sampling and catching system to prepare the samples. The rover will use the tool to scrape the exterior of one rock sample to reveal the unweathered surface below. Then Percy will blow the rock clean using a gas-based dust removal tool. And finally, we'll get down to the science studying the sample with a raft of cameras and sensors attached to the rover. 
The rover will actually look at both the rock surface and that dust plume that blows off during the cleaning phase. This will help the researchers gather a clear picture of the rock's mineral and chemical properties. After a much-deserved day off, Percy will then start to drill into the twin rock. A core sample around the size of a piece of chalk will be stored in a small test tube. After measuring and photographing the sample, it will be stored for the future. Now, right now, that future isn't written, but NASA is working with the European Space Agency in order to develop a craft that will be able to retrieve and return the samples to Earth, where they can be much more closely and precisely studied. Okay, so we are going to move on from space now, and I am going to tell you a tale that will hopefully warm your heart. Um, I find it amazing and hilarious, um, but I'm also really into birds and smart birds, so your mileage may vary, but uh, I just this story tickled my heart. So apparently, sulfur-crested cockatoos, which are kind of crow-sized cockatoos, they're mostly white, but they have a yellow crest, which is why they're called sulfur-crested. Uh, and so they live in Australia, and they've learned how to open garbage can lids in order to to access, uh, you know, basically people's leftovers. Um, and they're passing that trick on to their peers. And so one bird even invented a novel way of opening the lid, which then quickly spread to nearby suburbs. We observe that the birds do not open the garbage bins in the same way, but rather used different opening techniques in different suburbs, suggesting that the behavior is learned by observing others, study lead researcher Barbara Klumpf, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Radofels, Germany, said in a statement. The birds are large-brained, long-lived, and highly social, according to the researchers. Richard Major, a senior principal research scientist at the Australian Museum Research Institute, studies urbanization's effects on birds. He showed a friend a video of a cockatoo opening a garbage lid. The cockatoo opens the lid with its beak and foot and then shuffles to the side to flip the lid over and access the goodies within. That friend turned out to be senior author Lucy Applin, a research group leader at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior. She and Klumpf were both enchanted, as you should be. <laughs> it was so exciting to observe such an ingenious and innovative way to access a food resource. We knew immediately that we had to systematically study this unique foraging behavior, Klumpf said. And so they wanted to know if this was a social learning phenomena or a genetics-based ability. So they turned to citizen scientists. They ran an online survey in 2018 and 2019 asking Sydney and Wollongong area residents to document when and where they were seeing the behavior. 
Australian garbage bins have a uniform design across the country, and sulfur-crested cockatoos are common across the entire East Coast, study co-researcher John Martin, a research scientist at the Taronga Conservation Society, said in the statement. The first thing we wanted to find out is if cockatoos open bins everywhere. They ended up receiving 338 reports from 44 suburbs describing the birds performing feats a raccoon would be proud of. In 93% of the cases, multiple birds were present, suggesting that social learning was absolutely possible. A mapping of the sightings show that the behavior likely began in three suburbs of Sydney, where people remembered the behavior from before 2018. Once one bird learned the trick, it quickly spread out to faraway districts, suggesting, again, that the behavior was socially learned. These results show the animals really learned the behavior from other cockatoos in their vicinity, Klump said. Next, the researchers marked the birds with dots of paint in three bin-opening nexuses identified by the surveys. At one spot, Stanwell Park in Wollongong, New South Wales, of 114 birds marked, 36 tried to open bins, with nine being successful. Both juveniles and adults opened the bins, with a majority being male. Most of the other birds waited for the lid to be lifted and then joined in the uh, enjoyment of the spoils. Now, it's unknown why males would be so favored, but they do tend to be larger and more aggressive and may be basically trying to claim the bins for themselves. And so the process is actually quite complex. And so um, the researchers found that it involved multiple steps. And so again, they found that different areas had birds with different techniques, further reinforcing that the behavior was learned rather than genetic. And so, yeah, that is pretty cool. I have to say, um, I love the idea of birds having figured out how to uh, lift the lids on trash cans. And I know that I shouldn't be so gleeful about it because I'm sure it makes a mess and it's probably in some ways not good for them, um, probably in many ways not good for them. But I just, you know, I always love stories about uh, animals showing off just how intelligent they are um, because, I mean, that's just, that is where the where my happy place is, um, <laughs> is animals finding ways to prove that they are um, in some ways uh, just as intelligent as humans, um, if not human adults, then certainly uh, human children. Uh, and of course, parrots are one of those um, species that is well known for this, <laughs> along with crows. Okay. Um, so we have time tonight for one more quick, uh, story. So we are actually going to talk about genetics for a minute instead of, uh, learned behavior. 
And so we're also going to be sort of circling back on something we've been talking about a lot, which is uh, ancient hominid species and just how different we are from them, uh, which in my estimation is not that much. Um, So new research suggests that only 1.5 to 7% of human genetic material actually contains uniquely human DNA. And so just as a caveat, uh, obviously, and, um, you know, I talk about this at the very end, but this is uh, based on our current uh, DNA knowledge of Denisovans and um, Neanderthals, which is not complete. And so um, there's actually some thought that it might get even smaller, um, but, you know, it might also become um, more distinct. We just don't know. So basically what they did was they looked at um, genes across the genome and looked for um, places where it had been tweaked. And so what they found, um, they looked at the complete genomes of 279 people and they looked at the portions of their genome, which came from Denisovans, Neanderthals, or from a common ancestor of all hominids. They found about 50% of the genome contains regions where one or more people inherited DNA from Neanderthals or Denisovans, and most of the rest came from the most recent common ancestor of all hominids. And so, yeah, it's not really surprising though, because we separated from the Neanderthals really, 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 really late uh, in evolutionary uh, um, timescales. So it's basically been a blink blink of the eye since we did that. So that's just really interesting. Um, And, uh, but we are now out of time. So uh, humans are not all that different from our uh, recent ancestors, but, you know, we're still very cool and unique and have the potential to be awesome. All right. So have a great weekend. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.